0: Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So let's go to our first email, and this is coming from Anne, who declined to tell us where she's uh, reaching out from. Anne writes... Hello, doctor. The men on my mom's side of the family all died of sudden heart attacks in their 40s. I recently had an advanced cholesterol test, which showed my LPA at 356, and the cutoff is supposed to be no more than 75. My total cholesterol was 245 with an LDL of 150 and HDL of 81 in a ratio of 3.0 with a triglyceride of 55. I've been eating clean, le Mediterranean-type diet for 30 years. No smoking, do exercise, and my only bad habit is a little wine before dinner. I also have hemochromatosis, uh, which gets managed. My doctor wants to discuss statins. I'm 66 years old and have been taking mirtazapine for insomnia since 1999. Do you have any thoughts about what we can do instead of taking statins? I do, in fact, and have some thoughts. So before we go any further, uh, I want to tell you that what's more important is what happened to the women on your mother's side than the men, uh, especially since in that age group, men in their 40s had heart attacks all the time back when you would have been a young girl. So I think you need to look at when they had those heart attacks and if they smoked. Uh I'm going to go to the LPA in some detail, but I I want to just preview this by saying that your numbers are actually very good. And the mistake, the tactical error that I used to think was just an honest mistake, but given the resistance I'm seeing from the cardiology community on this, uh, and particularly, I was sad to say, the primary care community, I feel like Big Pharma is... mm, what's the word I want to use, propagandizing the the basic primary care doctor. And so they make sure that we know that if the LDL is above 30, that Pramingham says, oh yeah, you have to treat. Uh, But that's not true, especially not true for women. And statins do reduce the risk of heart attacks in high-risk individuals. And that's actually not, True for first heart attacks in women postmenopausally at all, actually. There's not a lot of good data for women who get to menopause without a heart attack. Now, if you've had a heart attack, you drop into another group, but right now you don't have the disease. You have a risk factor for a disease, and you have a family history of this disease in men, which doesn't really confer much risk to you unless there is also your mother and your grandmother having heart attacks. So you got two X chromosomes, which is really in your favor here. Also, your numbers are pretty good. Your uh, total cholesterol of two forty five is not so important as your good cholesterol, your HDL of eighty one. So the ratio in women, the thing that has the most predictive value for will this woman have a heart attack is having a high ratio, which usually means having not only an elevated cholesterol, but a low HDL. At 81, you are in the absolute sweet spot for your HDL. And again, a ratio of three to five is considered average risk. Above five is high risk. You're at three. So your triglycerides being 55 are great. Uh, I wouldn't call this an advanced cholesterol test just because it included the L- LPA, which I said I'll come to in a moment. An advanced cholesterol test in my book looks at particle size using good old MRI technology. And believe it or not, we still say nuclear medical resonance because the only people who are reading these are doctors, so they know not to be scared of the word nuclear uh, when referring to an imaging study, but you actually use an MRI device to measure the size of the particles, and the size of those LDL particles is key. If they're tiny, then they're a problem. They can get into your arteries. If they are big, they probably will bounce off the artery and not cause problems, the other thing that I like is your triglycerides of 55. The chances that you are insulin resistant are zero with that number, which means your insulin levels are normal, probably below normal because you are actually eating a healthy diet. And normal means average for our society. So keep that in mind when you look at these normal ranges. Uh, you're in the ideal range for your triglycerides. You probably are also, I could infer, in the ideal range For your insulin, Uh, insulin raises triglycerides and lowers HDL, which is the good stuff that's protective. So I'm looking at this and saying, hmm, there's nothing about those numbers that would make me even think about putting this person on a statin. I might check an HSCRP and particle-sized so that I could really reassure you with science. But I'm just not concerned here about the numbers that you've told me, except, and I did promise I would get here, that LPA. So the LPA, this is a lipoprotein A, and it is a marker on the surface of uh, the, well, basically the things that label the LDL and the HDL. LPA is an independent risk factor for heart disease and is operative in your case as we do the statistics. But the treatment for LPA isn't a statin. In fact, a statin will do literally nothing to lower LPA or to reduce your risk because the things a statin works on, which is the LDL and the uh, insulin, well, inflammation across the board, not so much insulin, are, uh, aren't present in your case if that HSCRP is normal. And statins are anti-inflammatories and they're good ones. And that's probably where much of the benefit in preventing heart disease and and progression of cardiovascular plaque comes from, is from the anti-inflammation bit. But that being said, uh, they're generic, they're widely available, and you're made to feel like you're committing malpractice if you don't, give it to a patient whose LDL is above 130, male or female, and you'll actually kind of get, if you're working for an enterprise, you'll get, like, notifications reminding you that this person should be on a statin. Now, diabetics, which is not you with a triglyceride of 55, the threshold for starting a statin is lower because diabetics have, well, they get their heart attacks 10 years earlier than the rest of us. So the 85-year-old gets a heart attack, nobody's uh, Nobody's surprised. The 70-year-old who gets a heart attack, if they're diabetic, nobody's surprised. If they're not diabetic, people are like, really? What was their cholesterol? Because that's the risk factor that people think about. But this LPA can be a very bad risk factor, and your numbers are very high. What does it do? It's a procoagulant. So it doesn't trigger the heart attack, but it will amplify the effects of the heart attack, A person with an LPA like this, I would be putting on some kind of blood thinner, something along the lines of high-dose fish oil to make them less likely to clot, kind of counteract the procoagulant effect of the LPA. The only known drug that brings down LPA, and it does work, but there's a problem, is niacin, high doses of niacin will bring down LPA in a lot of people. It messes with the production of this. The problem is niacin causes flushing and makes people nauseated and uncomfortable at the doses that are going to be successful. And the the extended release niacins don't work nearly as well for some reason. So you need a fairly high niacin dose. What am I talking about? 1,500 milligrams, you know, a lot of niacin. Uh, then there is a drug called Niaspan, and as I said, it's pre- it works sort of, and that might improve your LPA enough that your doctor would stop scaring you. But if you, since you've asked me, I will give you my opinion, and my opinion is that you're doing all the right things, and I'm not worried about a little re- a little wine, red, white, or blue before a dinner. The hemochromatosis is managed, and that. Raises your body's levels of iron. Iron is a inflammatory compound, so the combination of the hemochromatosis and the elevated LPA uh, are a problem across the board. I'd like to see that number come down. So, first thing I do is probably try the Niaspan and measure the levels in three months and see what see if I could get them to come down. Unfortunate. Uh, the second thing, while I was doing that, I'd probably take. 2,000 milligrams of omega-3 fatty acids, 1,000 of DHA and 1,000 of EPA because that will thin your blood substantially and probably more than counteract any procoagulant effect that you're getting from the LPA. So, that's my medical opinion for what it's worth. The other thing, of course, is we're assuming that you're not diabetic. And I will throw out a, wor- a word for taking hormones. Okay. Women who go on hormones at menopause and stay on hormones into their 60 have much lower rates of heart attacks. They don't b- develop the plaque that otherwise women develop after menopause. And this is a known thing. It was actually proven by the Women's Health Initiative, even though they were using PremPro, uh, they got better results with the Premarin-only group, those who didn't have a uterus and didn't need the progesterone, did really well, and they didn't get more breast cancer. They did have fewer heart attacks and less colon cancer, however. So estrogen can actually be good for you, but everyone is so afraid of it now because of that Women's Health initiative study 2002 and we've still got ptsd on that thing looks like we have someone who actually sent an email i'm going to open another email so i always try to get the earliest ones especially relatively local people so hang on and let me read this one all right this is from troy in uh, pacific grove i believe I'm a 71-year-old male and I'm on low doses of levothyroxine, 50 micrograms, uh, for hypothyroidism and I'm otherwise in good health. Based on the benefits you reported about taking green tea, I recently began taking green tea extract, (EGCG) 200 milligrams a day. But I've read that green tea could harm the liver in some cases or cause skin conditions. What should I wash out for? Also... I read a study that showed that adding milk to tea binds up the EGCG and lowers its potency by 68%. Quoting, "...simultaneous ingestion of dietary proteins reduces the bioavailability of gallated catechins from green tea in humans." How long do I need to wait after taking EGCG before eating dairy products such as cheese, ice cream, yogurt, etc.? Are there any other foods or drugs that should not be taken at the same time? Well, uh, from your curious tea drinker in Pacific Grove, uh, so you say you're taking an extract at 200 milligrams daily. So the first thing I would say about that is probably... Take it after dinner or at bedtime, and when there's no protein in your stomach, or if you're a person who walks around for an hour or so before eating breakfast, it wouldn't matter because it will have absorbed by 45 minutes in. You'll have been got. You've gotten all of the benefit, uh, and it's moved on into the small intestine. So what you put in your stomach at that point is probably irrelevant. I'd be a little concerned. It says protein binds it. Uh, so, yeah, proteins. Like if you were drinking it with a protein drink at the same time, you might reduce some of the benefit. But you're taking a pretty good dose, and I'm assuming that you're doing it for all of the benefits that I talked about. So uh, don't worry at that dose of harming the liver. You're drinking probably the equivalent of about three cups of green tea right there in with your 200 milligrams as far as the EGCG is concerned and as far as skin conditions are concerned never seen it probably referring to rash probably contaminant in the extracts rather than actual green tea which has been enjoyed all over the world uh since you know the <laughs> camellia bush existed. As soon as there were humans who figured out how to boil water, there was green tea. So I think we're pretty cool there. But just as with any herb or compound, if you develop a rash uh, or severe GI upset with with taking it, stop taking it. One more email, and then we'll go to some science. Uh, This comes from David. And uh, David writes... Thank you, Dr. Dawn. Love your show. I'm a 45-year smoker. So smoking for 45 years. Last fall, I used tea tree oil in a vaporizer in my sauna. Oh, the next morning, I woke up with very restricted lung function. That was 38 weeks ago. On my daily walks, I have been excreting yellow, brown, and red phlegm. I did not feel ill. My blood pressure and body temperature were always unremarkable. Although... My oxygen levels went from 97 to 92 and is just now back up to 95, 96, and 97. Uh, I live in interior Alaska, was only stopped from my daily walks three times during the winter. Deep breathing exercises while on my dog walks. Do you think the tea tree oil was the culprit as it started the day after its use? My age is 62. Much love. Yeah, David, I think you gave yourself a really significant reaction there and it was probably a direct toxicity reaction rather than an allergy uh, tea tree oil can cause dermatitis and allergies uh, and it's all about the dose in fact when I was uh, in 2017 I was went to was driving by a place where they extracted tea tree oil in while I was in Vietnam so I went and looked at their process and I bought some of their uh, they're very, very, very concentrated tea tree oil and brought it home with me. And that stuff is easily 10 times the potency of the stuff one would buy at the drugstore. I'm extremely careful when I use it not to get it on my skin. Um, it's actually working quite well on toenail fungus, which I don't mind to cop to. Uh, and it's keeping it well under control. So Uh, I'm very happy with that, but I also am really careful that I don't get it onto my skin in large amounts, and I'm watching for irritation. So uh, if you're still bringing up the yellow, brown, and red phlegm, red phlegm means bleeding, so you may still be raw in there. Obviously, your recuperative powers are good because you've brought that oxygen back up, but I'm sure you remember you're not supposed to mix bleach and ammonia because you create a toxic gas Called chlorine gas, and I think you gassed yourself essentially by putting a too concentrated tea tree oil in a vaporizer. See, the skin lining your lungs is much more vulnerable than the skin on the surface of your body, and honestly, you're the. F- it, I would have if asked, advised against using an infusion of tea tree oil uh, in a vaporizer. You have to be really careful. When you use something like eucalyptus, uh, and certainly tea tree oil, because these are very irritating chemicals. Just think of a redwood splinter in your lungs. Uh, you're all you're up there in interior, Alaska. I don't know what your access to health care is. I would uh, the long-term smoker has me a little bit worried. You probably should get some pulmonary function tests and maybe a chest x-ray and not just rely on your your digital oxygen. Uh, There may be some treatment. You know, if I had to guess, I'd say a a short course of steroids might be a good idea, just in case you've got a loop of inflammation uh, going. And, you know, for everybody else out there, children, don't try this at home. I don't think this was uh, a good idea, and I'm not sure if you read it on the internet or what, but if you did read it somewhere, Uh, please send me a link to where you saw this because I need to get in their face about endangering the public. And as you know, you can put content up there on the Internet and tell people to shoot themselves in the head and you're not legally responsible if they do it. Uh, So what we'd like to do is make sure that whatever moderation is available gets that particular bit of advice off the record. And if you are a defender of tea tree oil uh, infusions, please reach out to me and show me your data about uh, how that's safe, because I just got some data that it isn't. All right, on to science. And starting with science, let's talk about an actual breakthrough in science, before I do that, I want to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of the paper that uh, won the Nobel Prize, by the way, uh, in chemistry for the discovery of CRISPR, the gene-editing cut-and-paste tool that has transformed medicine in the last decade and many other aspects of research. So go CRISPR, and also shout-out to Jennifer Duodna, Doudna, I'm sorry, not remembering exactly how to pronounce your name, and uh, but I can spell it D O U D N A. So that was a huge discovery. But we're not talking about CRISPR this time. We're talking about base editing, which is the newest kid on the block when it comes to fixing DNA. And base editing is really quite new. This new UCLA study I'm about to tell you about used advanced genome editing base editing as a one-time treatment for a rare and deadly genetic disease called CD3 delta severe combined immunodeficiency and skid well that's a flaw in production of T cells and children who are born with a mutation in their T cell production are unable to make them and they die. Uh, they can't treat. They can't fight off infections, and most of them die within the first two years of life. A long time ago, there was a TV movie which I still remember because I was a kid. It was called "The Boy in the Bubble," and it was about someone who I think had, they knew that he had it because his one of his siblings had had it, so they were watching for it. And sure enough, uh, they basically popped him into uh, a sterile environment where he grew up because nobody could touch him, nobody could expose him to the diseases. And uh, because viruses are so ubiquitous and most of us are shedding virus at one time or another and don't know it, as we all know now, that can be a thing. So in a study just published in the the peer-reviewed journal Cell, researchers showed that this new genome editing technique, base editing, corrected the mutation that causes this in blood stem cells and re- restored their ability to produce T cells. Dr. Donald Cohn's lab had previously developed successful gene therapies for several immune deficiencies, including a few other forms of Skid. He and his colleagues looked at CD3 Delta at the request of a doctor in Canada, Dr. Nicola Wright, a pediatric hematologist and an immunologist at the Alberta Children's Hospital Research Institute in Canada, who was looking for a better treatment option for her uh, patients with this type of skid called CD3 Delta. And so she went to the skid boy, which is Dr. Donald Cohn. And well, she got some results. This particular mutation is prevalent in a Mennonite community that migrates between Canada and Mexico. I'm guessing Mexico in the winter. Um, And because when babies are born in Mexico, they're not screened for severe combined immunodeficiency diseases. She's seeing babies who've been diagnosed late and are coming back to Canada quite sick because they've basically been unable to fight off viruses for the first six months of their life. So they, there was a... A research associate, was in the end of her senior year. So this, this woman was a genius and I guess needed a project. She got her professor, Dr. Cohen, to let her try base editing. And this is a very precise form of genome editing. It's not cutting and pasting the way CRISPR cuts both strands of the chromosomes to make changes, take out some bad DNA. Base editing is really different because you can change one DNA base letter to another chemically and leave the chromosome intact. You don't cut the chromosome. You just target an area and you can change an A to a G. And this is a really tricky thing to do because obviously off-target mutations could turn something else on or off or mess up another gene. But uh, they went out and reached the inventor of base editing. See, this is how science is supposed to work. This is because these people are getting paid by institutions and funded by government. They're not worried about not sharing information to, because they're not going to get the patent. They're worried about getting the treatment. And that's how collaborative si- science needs to work. And if you're getting government funding, you should be required to share your data. So anyway, they found a base editor that was very efficient at correcting this particular mutation in this particular place. Then they sent down to UCLA. Uh, this is in UCLA. So they had to get enough uh, stem cells with from someone with skid to actually test this idea. So Dr. Wright up there in Canada had a... CD3 delta skid patient who was undergoing a bone marrow transplant. So they took some of the those uh, stem cells, the six stem cells, and uh, sent them down to UCLA, where the base editor was able to correct seventy one percent of the stem cells, as near as they can tell. Now the question is, could these corrected stem cells? Actually, give rise to mature functional T cells, and they weren't sure about that. So they worked with another uh, UCLA instructor, Dr. Gloria Yu, and Dr. Yu creates thymic organoids. These are we've talked about organoids many uh, times on this program by now. This is a new invention, which is basically human tissue that's growing in as a lump in a jar let's call it or a lump in a bottle and but they are fully formed organs so they act just like the actual human thymus and they can serve as the motel room for these stem cells and see whether or not they start producing mature t cells and sure enough like a like a 3d printer these corrected stem cells thrived in these artificial thymuses and produced functional and mature T cells. And these T cells, you'll remember, are going to be the T cells of the individual who gets their, their stem cells base edited. So this comes out of the body. The bad stem cells are changed back into good ones. And because this is an absence mutation where people aren't making a protein, replacing the protein fixes the disease. But how long are they going to last? So, as a final step, they uh, studied the longevity of the stem cells by transplanting them into a mouse. And this would be one of those mice that don't attack the cells immunologically. You know, and they were still there four months after transplant, sitting in the bone marrow of the mouse, turning out self renewing human T cells. So, this means they could persist for a long time. This might be a fix, a permanent fix for individuals, or maybe it would need to be renewed periodically. But either way, compared to being the boy in the bubble, this is a huge, huge breakthrough, and I just want to celebrate it. We're going to stay with the breakthroughs, and I want to give you some information about the sense of smell, which is proving to be a very, very difficult thing for us to understand. But on March 19th in Nature... Some new findings from UCSF are really, really going to blow this field wide open because they have finally found out how to concentrate enough odor molecule to watch it activate the human odorant receptor. Now, any regular listener to this program knows that receptors have a shape, and that shape is, let's call it, open, not doing anything, until something comes along and fits itself like a jigsaw puzzle piece. Think of it as a 3D jigsaw puzzle piece, right into the spot where it causes a conformational change. Now, you remember all these molecules are effectively magnetic. They have positive and negative charges. And so when you put a positive charge next to another positive charge, they repel each other. And so that's going to cause part of the receptor molecule to move. Same thing for a positive charge and a a negative charge. Those are going to attract each other. But those conformational changes cause a ripple in the cell wall. And that ripple is felt um, largely by something called a G-protein, which then does something enzymatically inside the cell that sets off a chain of reactions, usually four or five before you get to the nucleus, and often will cause things to be made or not made or masked or not masked. And certain things like estrogen actually go straight through the cell wall and down onto the nucleus and do their promoting themselves. But much of what happens, including uh, triggering the neurons, is purely done by conformational change. So, it's been a huge goal to understand fragrances, food sci- science, and that's not even getting to pheromones and uh, the biological uh, effects in the brain of smell. And how does the nose work anyway? well there 's about four hundred unique scent receptors that have been identified remember we 've only got five taste bud sensors, and so smell is a very important component of taste. as anyone who got their their nose knocked out by COVID, by COVID could tell you but each of the there 's hundreds of thousands of different smells that we can detect and differentiate, and we've even gone to dogs who are capable of such amazing nuance in their odor processing will be an interesting question. Do they just have 400 receptors, but a whole lot of brain attached to processing? Open question at this moment, to me at least. Each type of molecule comes into the nose and it basically has to flip a bunch of switches by an array of receptors. So every time you catch a whiff of something, it's like hitting the chord on a piano. Uh, so... This is coming from, as a metaphor, from Dr. Hiroaki Matsunami, who is a professor of molecular genetics at Duke University. And Matsunami's work has focused on decoding the sense of smell and seeing how the receptor binds to an odorant and how it works on a fundamental level. So, this lab at UCSF, uh, headed by a Dr. Manglik used a type of imaging called cryo-electron microscopy. This is a new technology that actually lets people see the atomic structure of molecules and study their shapes. But before they could visualize this, getting before they could look at a receptor and watch it happen, they needed a fairly large dose of receptor in order to see it. Now, ordinarily, you need about a milligram of the receptor protein to resolve with your cryo-EM. So the first really cool thing here is that one of the scientists, Christian bilsboel I'm not sure about my pronunciation, forgive me, was able to get it down to one one-hundredth of a milligram of receptor. Now, they decided to use a receptor called OR51E2, they could have gotten a little more original with their naming conventions here, but presumably that conveys some sort of information, like a phone number gives you, you know, the area code or something. Anyway, this responds to propionate, which is a molecule that is very pungent. It's that Swiss cheese smell. And it's part of that rich aroma of Swiss cheese, but there's other molecules involved to get Swiss cheese, on its own, it smells kind of like something's rotted. And so, of course, these re- these heroic researchers, rather than going for menthol or caraway, uh, decided, well, this is something that's going to really have a close conformational change because it's adaptive for us to be able to notice when food's gone bad. And so they thought, yeah, it's probably a pretty specific st- Fit and they had some evidence that that was the case, so they got a lot of receptors together enough for this MRI. And you know, one of the things about smell is that we can detect fairly uh, tiny amounts of odors, so they were able to use this to measure exactly how many molecules. Uh, are we able to detect before, or are we able to detect before we get that conformational change that sends a signal to the brain? There's also some other uh, things. For example, using odorant receptor pairs has been implicated in prostate cancer. There was a woman in England who was a super-smeller, and she smelled and diagnosed her husband's prostate cancer because she was also surprise, surprise, a nurse. And just like a good hound dog, she had noticed that patients with prostate cancer smelled a certain way. There's also, these receptors are also in the gut, not just in the nose. And we now know that serotonin release in the gut is implicated with other odors. And so aromatherapy, you just got a major boost here because now we can actually do the science to show that, for example, Lavender is releasing gabamina butyric acid in the brain, GABA. Maybe we can start really studying this and other alternative type strategies. But I definitely have been using uh, m- very minimal uh, aromatherapy in my office for years and, it, and on myself. And it truly is calming, even if the odor is so subtle that you can barely detect it. And I know the patients don't know it's there. But I can see an effect on them. So I'm all behind this whole aromatherapy idea. Sit back and listen to good news about the Mediterranean diet. Our earlier emailer was bragging about her uh, cardio, about whether... her diet, and indeed her Mediterranean diet is keeping her from developing any insulin resistance, and it's probably responsible for those very excellent HDL levels that she had. I'm betting those men who died of sudden death in her family were not eating a Mediterranean diet. And this is a diet that's rich in foods like seafood, fruits, and nuts, and not just fruits, but vegetables in general, plants, eat plants. So this study comes from Newcastle University in the United Kingdom, and it's part. It was published in BMC Medicine. It's one of the largest studies of its kind, and it's pulling data from something called the UK Biobank. Sixty thousand two hundred ninety-eight individuals. That's a large cohort. People from all over the United States, and this is a bit like the Framingham Study, in which that a whole bunch of people are. Followed longitudinally. It's advantageous for many reasons, but one of them is just looking at the natural history of disease and who gets what. And you can go back and then pull blood samples, look at DNA, look for pro- co- uh, components coming out in the stool or urine that might have predictive value. And of course, there's lots and lots of questionnaires if you participate in a study like this. So the researchers. Uh, looked at those who had completed a dietary assessment in this cohort, and they looked at those key features of a Mediterranean diet and then followed them. And over that uh, decade in which they were followed, 882 of the 60,000 were diagnosed with dementia. And the researchers looked at their DNA. They estimated something called, known as the polygenic risk, which is a measure of all of the different genes that have been associated with development of dementia, and that's where your genome-wide association studies come in. So we know kind of what the fingerprint of high risk for dementia is genetically. And what they found was any individual, regardless of their polygenic risk, benefited from Mediterranean diet adherence. They saw a strong correlation. Uh, In fact, they think that those with a higher genetic risk actually benefited more than the general population, which kind of makes sense since a lot of those genetic risks are related to high levels of cholesterol and high inflammation. And the Mediterranean diet is good for bringing both of those down. Now, it's important to say as a caveat that this was done in England and their analysis in in order to keep the N high enough to see statistics, they only used people who described their ethnic background as white, British, or Irish, uh, because they only had genetic data available because the genome-wide association studies have primarily been performed on people in the dominant ethnic group uh, of wealth in England, which still correlates with race. And they basically said, more plant-based foods, the better. The more seafood, the better. And you can really make a significant reduction in the risk of dementia, up to 30% in some individuals, just by changing how you eat. And more fruits and vegetables. How hard is that, really? So, more science. This one about understanding how the brain stores fear. So the brain uses distinct mechanisms to store recent versus remote memories, and that includes recent versus remote fear memories. So previous studies have established what we think we know about memory in general, that is the initial formation of fear memory involves electrical activity in the hippocampus, which progressively matures with time, and this hippocampus activity has an effect at a distance, and you actually change the structure of the brain when you form a memory. It's initially electrical, but then over time, the neurons that are firing over and over again because of the echo of the memory actually grow synapses that connect them, and now you have a memory circuit But the question about where that long-term memory circuit lives and how long it perpetuates itself without further exposure has been a big issue. It becomes less and less dependent on the hippocampus over time. And recent fear memory is in the hippocampus, but as it's consolidated and turned into synapses, it migrates to the prefrontal Cortex, And that's where early childhood adverse events are going to go live. They, looking at mice, uh, found a small group of nerve cells within the prefrontal cortex, which is also, by the way, the thing that is wonky in ADD that prevents you from concentrating, because the prefrontal cortex is where you make, it's, it's the Jiminy Cricket. It makes you do things. It reminds you to stay on task. And it's where you make moral judgments as far as that goes. So these memory neurons are active during the initial traumatic event and then reactivate during the recall of remote fear memory. And they did this in mice. Uh, and then they selectively inhibited the PFC. And what they were able to show is that mice who had been trained on a, on a – a well, I'll describe how they trained the mice in a moment – but Mice were not able to recall remote fear memories when they messed with those cells. In the experiments, they set this up by giving the mouse an aversive stimulus in an environment called a context. This is typically like put the mouse in a green room and then give them a shock uh, from to their paw on the floor or something along that. And you do that a couple of times, and then you don't put them in a green room. And a month later, you put them back in the green room, and the mouse, the mice, fry, freeze, which is the, which is their dorsal vagal response. Uh, so they're remembering the green room. Um, researchers showed that the prefrontal cortex were gradually strengthened with time after the initial fear learning and that this strengthening helped, helped the storage. Now, obviously, multiple exposures make it worse, but we all know that an extremely strong emotional event, a car accident, uh, seeing someone killed, uh, these stay in your brain after one exposure, and whatever is around in the environment as context gets linked neurologically. And this is probably where a lot of interesting phobias come from, And of course, if you've ever read anything about Scientology, you know that this idea of the linkage between context and a part of the brain are critical to the whole therapeutic structure that this, I don't know what I want to call it, cult slash religion slash, maybe they were on the right track, at least with some of this, because you've got to kind of deprogram the fear. So you can get chronic maladaptive fear. That's, that's what PTSD is. And somewhere around 6% of the population, I would argue probably more of that at the moment because I think we all have some PTSD around COVID. Uh, and certainly trees falling on your house don't help with stuff like that. Therapeutically, you can watch the strength of this prefrontal circuit decrease with repeated exposure to the green room without giving them the shock this was discovered many years ago in the 60s and and 50s by bf skinner which is the guy who sort of invented uh well he took what dr pavlov did and he scien- he instrumentalized it pavlov's discoveries about uh about associational Uh, conditioning were accidental. This guy sought to manipulate it with little pigeons pushing buttons, and among other things, that led to a really interesting Michael Crichton novel. And before I get too far afield, let me just say that we've known in psychology, since I was studying at UCLA, that if you re-expose people to the source of the trauma, you can over time blunt the PTSD. But the problem is doing that in a tolerable fashion. Could we do it with a drug, if we, or with a helmet that's like the magnetic transcranial therapy, or trans, uh, or uh, electrical transcranial therapy? Yeah, we probably could. We probably could hone in on the area and suppress its activity, and then expose people uh, and d- extinguish the associational pathway. It's really potentially an amazing bit of work, which, while it sounds like pure science with no practical application, feels like something that could really make a difference in therapeutics over the next few years. I'm going to turn to something that we are all confronted with wherever we live, and that's air pollution. This study uh, is... Really, really fascinating. It was published in a journal called Management Science, and these are people in the Netherlands and uh, Maastricht University, and they studied chess masters, and they looked at fine particulate matter in the air of the immediate environment. What they've discovered is astonishing. Given a modest increase in fine particulate matter, the probability that Expert champion chess players will make an error increases by 2.1 percentage point, and the errors are more severe. The magnitude of the errors increases by 10.8. So at least in this setting, cleaner air leads to clearer heads and sharper thinking. They found that the higher the levels of air pollution, the more mistakes and the larger the significance of the mistakes uh was it was called the the prepublication is indoor air quality and strategic decision making and what are we talking about we're talking about those 2.5 micron particles that well actually that's about the size of the covid virus 2.5 microns and uh this is these are what small amounts of diesel soot look like as well They're associated with anything burning, including internal combustion engines. And if you live near a road where a lot of cars are going back and forth, the air inside your home will undoubtedly have higher levels of PM2.5. Other things that increase it, forest fires. And these PM2.5 particles went up massively from like 40 to 300 in our area during the August lightning complex fires. And of course, whenever there's a forest fire and you can smell or cease to soot uh, in the sunset, you're breathing that stuff. And our masks, unless you want to walk around wearing an N95 constantly that's taped to your face, uh, you're going to get dehydrated, by the way, if you do that, uh, you're you're breathing the stuff. We, the World Health Organization says 4 million premature deaths worldwide, but how much does it affect cognition? So where'd they get the data? First of all, they looked at 121 chess players in three seven-round tournaments in Germany, 2017, 18, and 19. That's 30,000 chess, move, chess moves, and they used three web-connected sensors in the tournament to measure carbon dioxide and temperature. And each tournament lasted eight weeks. So you got air quality changes over that time. And they uh, then went and validated it looking at some of the strongest chess players, the ch- real champions of the champions, using 20 years of games and 20 years of, of atmospheric data. So during the, P- the tournaments, the PM 2.5 concentrations went from 14 to 70. And there's lots of areas in this country and urban centers that never get below 70. This is a common level of exposure. And they did everything they could to control for increased noise or temperature or any of the other things that are known to affect uh, performance. And what they found was carbon dioxide and temperature changes didn't per- affect performance. But And they used a computer program to analyze the effects of the moves and whether this was how, whether this was a mistake. And one of the places they really saw it was that you had to make 40 moves within 110 minutes. And an air pollution increase of 10 micrograms per cubic meter increased the probability of error by 3.2% and the magnitude by 17.3%. And I mean this, if you live in LA or any other area that's smoggy, that that sort of fluctuation happens all the time, and what they think is that if the players weren't on a timer, the effect would be less, because they'd be able to take their time and spot those errors and not make them, but because they're in a time-pressured situation. And how many of the bad decisions in your life have you made when you were in a time-pressured situation? Well, if you're anything like me, most of them. So, anyone with tricky cognitive tasks really needs to clean their environment. Now, fortunately, the air cleaners that are commercially available out there do filter out, the HEPA filters do filter out the 2.5 microns. And... I am strongly recommending if you're making errors or you're having problems, or especially if you're starting to feel cognitively impaired, cleaning up your indoor environment, uh, maybe maybe switching to electric cooking, sorry, but we know that using gas actually substantially raises the two point, the 2.5 micron content in the household. And people climbed all over a public health official at the EPA recently for pointing that out. It became uh, the kind of meme of the week on Fox News. I'm not going to revisit that issue. But I am going to spend the last couple of minutes telling you that you're, you're not okay, no matter where you are. Because in the first world's first study of daily ambient fine particle across the globe... A Monash University study found that only 0.18%, that's 018 of the global land area, and even better, 0.001% of the global population are not exposed to this stuff at levels below above the safety recommended by the World Health Organization. So... In some areas like Southern Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Latin America and the Caribbean, 70% of days globally see levels above what is safe. And nobody gets out of this without being exposed or almost nobody. I mean, one ten thousandth of the global population is safe and the rest of us are exposed. And we've already demonstrated in the previous article that this has a profound effect on, on cognition. So... Annually, you're best off in Australia and New Zealand, although they have higher levels some of the time. Uh, South America, the unindustrialized areas of South America, have the lowest annual part per million concentrations. But this really is a huge problem in much of the world. And cooking with gas, cooking with wood, really pollutes the indoor environment. So for those, for those of you who do have to do that, get yourself the filters, keep them clean, clean out the environment, make sure that, that your wood stove, if you're using a wood stove, vents properly. This stuff is really bad for you, and we already know that it increases your risk of dementia. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at, at @askdrdon. Dawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky, music by John Scoville.